Thank you for joining us for the Cross Loganville podcast as we continue our way through the book of James. Good morning, guys. <clears throat> Real quick before I get started again, every week that I get to come and teach to you guys, I am uh, just so blown away by, by the worship team that is here with Nick and Lisa and you guys. Uh, it, is, it is incredible um, just to get to worship with you guys. And Brad Hardiman, I don't know where you went, man, but you've got an authenticity uh, and a joy, man, that seeps out of you. And so I don't know where you are in here, man, but it's a pleasure just to, to watch you worship as well. And so this morning, we're going to be in James chapter 5 is going to be our main text. And we're going to, uh, we're going to look at a few other passages along the way. But um, when we were, we're kind of looking at this sermon series, as, and, and Dad was giving me a few dates and passages to talk about, he, uh, he called me and said, hey, I want you to, to do James 5, 1 through 6, because I want to see how you, how you handle that. And uh, so I looked into it, and uh, we're talking about money today. And so I started, I started reflecting, and I thought, well, I said, uh, what better way to, to talk to your church about money than get somebody who doesn't go here regularly to talk about money? So if you don't like what's said today, you can't get mad at them. You can get mad at the guy that you don't see every week. Um, and so that said, if you, if you do have an issue with today, you can email Steve at thecrossloganville.org. Uh, he oversees finances and some crisis management. Uh, so he would love to receive that. We're going to lock the doors, knowing nobody can leave. Um, but no, we're, we're excited this morning. We've, I spent some time uh, a couple months ago, or I guess I should say a couple weeks ago, kind of prepping for this and, and writing out where we wanted to go. And then uh, a month ago, actually a month ago yesterday, we had our second baby boy was born. Uh, so he'll be here later this afternoon. But Arrow uh, came into the world, and, and as we're in the hospital uh, for a couple days, um, getting induced and with some possible concerns and stuff, I really uh, just felt the Lord kind of pressing on my heart that where uh, I had kind of written out uh, originally was not where he wanted, um, wanted this morning to go. And so uh, we're going to spend a little bit of time this morning reading the passage, but then uh, reflecting on a couple contrasts as far as people in Scripture uh, and how they actually handled money. Um, and so James is inevitably going to address uh, the group of people that are most likely to fall away from following Jesus or never follow Jesus uh, to begin with. And that is the wealthy and those that are consumed with wealth and materialism and possessions. And so I want to start by saying that money in and of itself is not bad. Money in itself is not evil at uh, at its root, we need money to live. We need money to pay the bills, to eat, uh, to take care of our family. Money can be used to heavily bless people and make a huge impact in this world. Uh, it can have huge eternal uh, kingdom benefits as well. Being somebody who works in a nonprofit ministry, uh, we rely on people's uh, excess and their generosity to give to the ministry that we, uh, that we do. The church needs uh, finances. The, the, the ministry of God uh, is, is a lot of the time propelled by people's generosity. And so money in and of itself is not evil. However, when money becomes what we are most concerned with, uh, we face a serious danger that must be addressed. James is going to talk to the rich, but we must also understand that our bank account compared to someone else's isn't the litmus test to determine whether or not we qualify to be spoken to by this passage. Just because uh, I don't make as much money as a lot of the people that I may be around doesn't disqualify me from the teachings of James. 
Right? Like our tax bracket doesn't all of a sudden qualify or disqualify us. And so we must see that it is a posture of the heart towards materialism, towards wealth, towards the desire for more that James is addressing here. And so as we even begin being able to reflect, because we can very much so read, uh, he starts out and says, now listen, you rich people. And we can quickly be like, well, that, I mean, that disqualifies me. I mean, if y'all knew what I had, he ain't talking to me. Right? He's talking, I'm, I'm more of the, the woman at the well person he's talking to. But uh, now listen, you rich. And we've got to realize that uh, or even reflect on ourselves and say, okay, well, what do we do or what do we have? What do we own? Being able to even look at your kids and your family as uh, as blessings God has given you. Look in your fridge or your pantry at the food that we even have to eat. Look in your driveway. Look up at the ceiling I'm sure most of us get to sleep under at night, the bed uh, that we get to sleep in, and realizing that every gift, the Scripture says every good and perfect gift is from the Father. And all the things that we have, all the things that ultimately we have has been given to us by God. And so we must ask the question, of how are we stewarding those things? Is it from a heart of receiving and thankfulness or is there deeply rooted inside of us discontentment and a desire for more? Because that's who James is going to address. And so if you open up to James chapter 5, we're going to read verses 1 through 6. James says, now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence, and you have fattened yourself for the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you for uh, the truths of your scripture. We thank you uh, for the hard truths at times that we must wrestle with uh, in our inner being, um, and, and we must be able to, uh, to really let you assess our hearts, God. So I pray that's what you would do this morning. God, I pray that ultimately uh, you will speak nothing but your truth. God, I yield to you in the words that I speak. May they honor you. God, and will you help every person in this room, uh, Holy Spirit, fill it and help us to reflect and be honest with ourselves uh, and, and walk out of here transformed. In Jesus' name. So James, as we know, after being through the story, uh, was the half-brother of Jesus, meaning that he would have hung around Jesus, uh, and James would have most likely known the guys as well that walked with Jesus. Uh, he would have most likely probably had a meal with Jesus and his disciples, uh, maybe slept under the same roof from time to time, probably been to uh, a couple weddings or a few parties together. And so because James most likely would have, have known these guys, it leads us to confidence that James would have known Judas. Uh, we're talking about the Judas uh, who betrayed Jesus. And I can't help believe, too, that James would have seen the way that Judas and other people uh, who were consumed with money and materialism handled the teachings of Jesus as he observed throughout Jesus' life. We're good with that. We can all probably agree that, that James would have had an inside look and an outside perspective seeing Judas and others. And when Jesus would talk about money and materialism and the dangers of that, he would have had a front row seat to observe some of those things. 
Judas was one of the 12 disciples. He followed Jesus. He ate with Jesus. He slept in Jesus' camp. He learned from Jesus and was intentionally taught by Jesus daily for years. And not only was he, he taught with Jesus and walked with him, but he was given great responsibility in the ministry of Jesus. Judas was, uh, for, for all intents and purposes, the treasurer for the ministry of Jesus, meaning Judas was in charge of the money bag that went around with Jesus' ministry that they pulled from to, to pay for the, for, for the things that Jesus did uh, as he traveled. And we'll see that Judas followed Jesus physically, but as we'll read here in a minute, we need to assess whether or not he was really yielded to him spiritually. Was he too consumed with something uh, to fully allow himself uh, to be full of the love of Jesus? And so in John chapter 12, verses 1 through 8, we, we read a short passage to where Jesus is coming to, uh, to the end of his life. Uh, and we're about a week or so away from uh, the crucifixion and, and the resurrection, and, and Jesus is having a dinner party at the house of Lazarus, who he had raised from the dead. And so Jesus' disciples are there, and, and Mary is there, uh, not the mother uh, Mary, but uh, Mary Magdalene was there, and, and who had been transformed by the heart of Jesus. And as they're sitting, reclining, Mary comes in with this very expensive jar of perfume, and she breaks it, and she pours it over Jesus' feet and begins to wash his feet with her hair. And we'll pick up in, in verse 4 uh, of chapter 12. Um, get there myself. In verse 4 of chapter 12, it says that, But when one of the disciples saw this, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray, uh, betray him, objected. Why wasn't the perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. And it said here that Judas was a thief. He stole from the money bag of the ministry of Jesus. Uh, he was in charge. Jesus gave him great responsibility, and, and he would dip into it a little bit to, to pad his own pockets at times. And obviously Jesus would have known this and, and, and didn't address it uh, initially. And, and there's a whole other probably teaching we can go on that as far as maybe God not addressing our sin right away, but later on down the road. But we see that Judas was a thief. And in this moment, he tries to lie and disguise his frustration by wanting to steal money by saying, God, why, why did you allow Mary to break this? Because this is a year's wages. Right, like in our day and age, you'd be like, man, that was $60,000 perfume, man. That could have been given to the poor, and we could have used that money to bless somebody. And scripture says that Judas didn't care about the poor. He was mad because he knew that if we sold that perfume, he could have dipped into that a little bit for ourselves. And I read that passage this morning, and for the first time, it kind of jumped off to me. And I, and I thought, man, let's be honest. Have we ever done that? Have we ever bargained with God a little bit, saying, God, if you give me that raise, if you give me that bonus, I'll, I'll tithe a little bit extra. God, if you give me that, that big old house that I've been dreaming for, that my wife's been cutting out pictures for for years, you give me that house, man, I'll host a Bible study in my house. Man, you give me that new Corvette, I'll, I'll, I'll go pick up a kid from school once a quarter and, and give him a ride home. Right? And we can bargain with God. When, when we see these possessions that we want, we'll, we'll try to shuffle the cards around a little bit and say, yeah, yeah, God, but if you give me this, I'll give a little bit in return. But if we're honest with ourselves, deep down inside, we're, we're lying. We're bargaining for God because we want something that, that we say, yeah, we'll give a little bit to you in return. But our heart 
is not to, to, to use it to further the kingdom of God. And I read that, and we can be, we got to be very slow to, to look at Judas and think, Judas, what a fool, man. Like, Jesus knew your heart. How could you possibly say or do that? But I think if we're honest, there's times where, where we've done the very same thing. And so in this short passage, we are confronted, though, with a very sobering reality. We're confronted with a sobering reality that we can walk with Jesus, we can follow Jesus daily, we can eat with him, we can be a part of a whole lot of Jesus stuff and never actually know him if our heart's concern is more consumed with this world, its stuff, the possessions, and the pleasures that it can bring us. Judas is no different than a lot of us at times. Somebody who walked with Jesus, yet never actually really knew who he was. And that is a sobering reality for us, that we can do a lot of Jesus stuff and never actually know who he is. And I want to be clear with this, because the, the perspective and the misperception of the American Christianity at times is, well, if I can show up to church every Sunday of every week, I can join every Bible study, I can give a little bit of money in the plate on Sundays, I can do a lot of Jesus stuff and yet never know who he is and never have an authentic relationship with him if we are not yielded to who he is 100%. We can do a lot of stuff. I was talking to a friend of mine yesterday, and, and we were reflecting even on the letters in Revelation. I thought, man, what would, what would Jesus, if he wrote to the church in America, or if he wrote to the church in Loganville, what would he say? And reflecting even on myself, I was like, what, what would you write to me? And I was like, God, man, I feel like you'd write to me, man. You do a lot, but your productivity for the kingdom is little. We can do a lot. We can show up a lot and, and, and yet have very little productivity and furtherment for the kingdom if our heart is not yielded to him. And that's what we see here in, Jesus, or in Judas. And so we've got to recognize, is there anything of greater value to us in our life than truly wanting the heart of God to be our heart? Judas had a front row seat to the power of God and flesh, and yet he couldn't fully see it because materialism and money fogged his vision from being able to see the Son of God right in front of him. And he later on will, will sell Jesus out and betray Jesus for a little bit more wealth because Judas got to a point in his life where he's like, yeah, I don't think your kingdom, I don't think the, the teaching that you're, I don't think that you're really having any eternal impact. I just don't see with my eyes, through my lens, through my selfishness, that what you're teaching and trying to do is having any real impact. And so when Judas totally did not feel satisfied by his flesh, by Jesus' kingdom. He sold him out for some more wealth. That's heavy. Man, like when Judas said, Jesus, I don't think your teaching and your kingdom is satisfying my needs enough, I, he went and made a buck off God. Sold him out for some more wealth. And I believe that these scenarios, the, the, the one with Judas and, and, and here with the rich young rulers, what James is addressing. Uh, in Mark 10, 17 through 27, we're not going to read it, but Jesus talks about the young rich ruler who comes up to him and says, Jesus, what must I do to inherit uh, the kingdom of God? And Jesus obviously knew who he was and says, man, be generous, sell your stuff, give it away, and come and follow me. And the passage said that, 
the, the rich young ruler walked away deeply dismayed and grieving because he owned much property. In other words, when he said, Jesus, what do you want me to do? I mean, like, I've kept the commandments. I've done all these great things. What do you want from me to inherit the kingdom of God? He says, sell your stuff. Don't be so consumed with your stuff. Give it away and come follow me. And he owned much property. I mean, he was, he was wealthy. He had lots of stuff. And he walked away grieving and dismayed. And then Jesus looks at those who are with him and said, how hard will it be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God? And so we ask, where is our heart? Where is our priority? Is it in our possessions? Is it in our stuff? Because James says that these things will rot, they'll corrode, the moths will eat them, and they will actually be a testament against us in the end of our life, not a testimony advocating for our surrender to Jesus. Man. The things that we acquire, our possessions, the things that we become so consumed with each day, just having to have more and more and more, James says, at the end of your life, it will actually be a testament against you for your lack of surrender as opposed to the amount of surrender and devotion that you had to God. He says that we are fattening ourselves for the day of slaughter. And I want to contrast that a little bit with saying, but there is instances where God did use people who had wealth. God used people uh, who had some money but whose heart had a completely different posture towards it. Abraham was a very rich and wealthy man. Job had more money than he probably knew what to do with. And God used Job's possessions. He used God, or, uh, God allowed Job's money to be a form of test uh, against him. He allowed Satan to, to test that and to play with it and to use that against him. But when Job was continuously steadfast in the Lord, Job had more on the second half of his life than he did on the front half. I was talking to a friend of mine this week. We were having lunch, and we were talking about this. And he said, amen, don't we all want to have more on the second part of our life than the first half? David, God promoted a king and gave him great wealth. One of my favorite ones that I've reflected on over the last couple of weeks is Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he, and he, he was hated. Cedar and I, we have this little kid's Bible story that we'll read at night, and, and he, I think it's more because he doesn't want to go to bed, but man, he gets fired up for those Bible stories. And so recently we were reading, and, and the story of Zacchaeus came up, and um, what better way to, to reflect on, on Scripture sometimes than through the eyes of a child? And it's like, man, Zacchaeus didn't have any friends. Was it because he was too small? Was it because he was ugly? Was it because he smelled? And I'm like, well, those aren't real good reasons to not be Zacchaeus' friends. Zacchaeus had no friends because he robbed people. Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector for Rome. And so the man, he used to just steal and rob folks left and right. And he was hated. And Zacchaeus gets this, this, uh, this word that this Jesus guy's coming to town. And he's just this little old bitty dude. And he's like, well, man, I can't see over the crowd. So he runs and he climbs up a tree and he's peeking around. And it says that Jesus walked right up to that tree and looked up and said, Zacchaeus, man, I want to come to your house for lunch. And again, that little Bible story of Cedars is like Zacchaeus was freaking out because he thought, man, like if, if I don't hurry down and get to my house, Jesus might realize who I am and, and he might not want to come have lunch with me. So let me hurry and get down and, and get all this stuff prepped for, for Jesus. And Jesus the whole time knew exactly who Zacchaeus was. And when Zacchaeus felt the love of Jesus amidst uh, the robbing and the, and the sin and the wrong he'd done to people, Zacchaeus said, God, I give everything back. I'll give twice my wealth. I'll go repay people four times what I stole from them. 
The last one we see in Barnabas in the book of Acts, that Barnabas' actual name was Joseph, but Joseph was marked as such a man of encouragement through generosity that the, apostle, uh, the apostles renamed him Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. And so we see that money can be used in the right hands with the right posture of our heart towards God to be a huge blessing to people. We see that there can be great impact when our heart is yielded to the Father through our money. The last one that we'll see is in Mark chapter 12 in verses 41 through 44. We read just this little blip. And it says that Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put. He's in the temple. And he watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. And many rich people threw in large amounts. But a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. And calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly I tell you that this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she out of her poverty put in everything, all that she had to live on. Are we robbing God anywhere? Are we holding back from the generosity that, that we have the ability to give and it's, and it's robbing even the kingdom of God from being able to, to, to further expand and explode? Are we hindered in our spirits by the newest, the next best thing that hinders us from really being able to live into the generosity that God's calling us to? So you might be asking, well, Benji, where does Jesus have anything to say about this? Well, if you'll go with me to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 19, Jesus says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moths and vermin destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourself treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Verse 24, No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Sound familiar? Sounds like James might have been around to, to observe the life of Jesus and Jesus' teachings and the way people responded to that. When I laughed, I read this, and I was like, man, like all good teachings and writings, James just went and ripped off somebody who's a lot smarter and wiser than him and pinned it as his own. James isn't saying anything new. James is reflecting almost verbatim to what Jesus taught back in Matthew. You cannot serve both God and money. So how do we store up our treasures in heaven? What does it look like to begin to store up treasures in heaven for eternal purposes? Let me give you guys kind of four action steps here. The first one is to tithe. I cannot stress to you guys enough the impact that tithing can have on your life firsthand, the life on others, and for the furtherment of the kingdom. Guys, one of the most, I, I don't know if there's anything more impactful I've ever done in my walk with Jesus than begin to, to faithfully tithe. The church has a policy, I know dad's talked to you guys before, like if you begin to tithe and within a year you see no benefit to tithing, they'll stroke you a check back for every dollar you've given. That's how confident they are as a staff that when you tithe, it is impossible not to see God begin to, to do things in your life and bless you when you stop robbing him. 
Guys, there's been times where we have, and I don't want to say that it's always going to come back in the form of like monetary gifts, right? Like we're going to tithe and all of a sudden we're just going to receive like a $2,000 check in the mail tomorrow. And guys saying, woo, man, thanks for that. We're going to double it, right? But like when we tithe, the blessing that we uh, can open up to receive when we stop robbing God is crazy. I can't tell you how many times where uh, even... A handful of months ago, Grace and I, we were just in a tight month. Like, things were just tight. And we were praying, we're like, God, I just, we're just asking that you will continue to provide for us. And we had, this sounds crazy, and obviously the heart of the person was probably more to bless us. But I had this guy, he was like, man, I got this new German Shepherd dog, and we got this cat. And if that dog meets this cat, he will maul him to pieces. And so you take this cat, I'll even give you 500 bucks just to take this cat off our hands. I was like, I'll take a cat for $500. (laughs) You better believe that cat's going to get in my kitchen table for $500. In that same month, we had somebody else, literally with almost in the same week, I think it was, show up and say, hey, man, we're kind of in between churches right now, but the Lord laid on our heart that we're supposed to give our tithe to you guys this week just to bless you and your family. There was another instance that same week of somebody, I think they donated like some grocery money or something to us. Didn't ask one of those people, didn't tell one of those people where, where we were at, did not uh, solicit that to any capacity, but Jesus said, man, I know your heart. I, I see your faithfulness, I see your trust, I see that you're not robbing me, and in those moments, man, God can do some amazing things to bless you. It may look like in the form of health over your kids. Man, there could be sickness in your family that could be a result from robbing God. Right? Like, like there is provision and there is hell. there are so many things that God can bless you with if we are not robbing him. Second thing is to live generously. In Luke chapter 16, give me a second to get there. Luke chapter 16 in verse 10. He says, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. Whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, how will you give property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either you will love the one and hate the owner. It's the same thing. But he says, if you've been trusted with a little bit, if you've shown trustworthy of the simple means that God's given you, then you can be trusted with more. God may bless you more because you've been shown to be trustworthy what he's given you. But if you rob God, if you are untrustworthy with a little bit, how can you possibly expect God to give you more when you can't be trusted with a little bit? You think about your own kid. Like if you give your kid something small and he goes and wastes it, destroys it, totally tears it up, you wouldn't give him, like, if he takes a taco truck and burns it, you're not going to all of a sudden give him your truck, right? But you, you see that your child is trustworthy with a little bit, and then he's trustworthy with more and trustworthy with more until he's got his own house and truck and family one day. Same thing. Live generously. You have no idea that your generosity at the time to somebody might seem simple to you. But you may not ever know the true impact that, some, that your generosity to somebody else could have on them. I will testify to that all day long. There have been people in my life who have given blessings to us uh, through generosity that they may have never had any idea what that meant. But the impact, even in those few stories I just told based on tithing, like 
the impact that it had on me and my family and the confirmation of my heart that Jesus sees us, that he is provider, that he cares for us as his children, you'll never know the impact of that. But you also may never have that impact if you're closed-fisted everything that you got. Number three, steward what you do have. Steward what you do have. Don't waste it. Be wise with what God has given you and trust that you will be shown as trustworthy for more. Debt might be the greatest testimony against us that our heart might not be fully yielded to God. Tony Evans said that if you have more liabilities than you do assets, you might have a materialism issue. If we have more debt to our name than things that we own outright, we might need to do some serious heart check. Right? Steward what you do have. Be thankful for what we do have. If you've got a car that runs, praise God. Don't covet every time you drive past a car dealership because the Lord knows there's one every 100 yards in Loganville. If you've got a home that the Lord has blessed you with that you can afford, that, that you are able to maintain, don't covet the person's house down the road that's twice your size that you can't afford. Steward what you have. Steward, steward what you have. If there's debt, I know that there's classes, there's things that you guys can do to begin to, to kind of work out of debt, but don't let that be a testimony against you. And the fourth thing is to constantly check your heart. When you feel the urge of discontent, be willing to recognize it and surrender that to the Lord. Be willing to allow Jesus to speak into the areas of discontent when you feel yourself wanting more, when you feel yourself unsatisfied. Philippians 4.13 is probably the most uh, misused passage in all of Scripture. So I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I, mean, I can go climb Mount Everest with the strength of God. What? He's not even talking about being able to, to do things. He's talking about a, a heart posture of contentment. If we're going to read 4.13, we've got to read 4.11 and 12. It says, I've learned the secret to being content in any and all circumstances, whether well-off or in need, poor, wealthy, food, no food. I can do this through the strength that God gives me. It's not a rabbit's foot verse. It's a contentment verse. So being able to check your heart. As we get close to closing, well, there's a little eight, eight little questions that we can kind of ask ourselves. And when we start feeling this area of discontent or even to, to check our heart ahead of time, I'd recommend uh, even writing these down to reflect on. But the first question that we can ask ourselves is, do you think and worry about money frequently? When you get up in the morning and throughout the day when you're laying in bed at night, are you thinking and worrying consumed with money? Number two, do you give up on what you should do or want to do because there's more money elsewhere? Have you given up on the dreams and the desires that God has played, uh, placed deep inside your heart? Have you abandoned those things? Have you taken new jobs? Have you sacrificed time with your family because there's more money elsewhere? Do you spend more time when you ought, sorry, number three, do you spend more time than you ought to caring for or protecting your possessions? Does family time, this time with your kids, is there time wasted because you are so consumed with protecting the possessions that you have? Number four, is it easy or hard for you to give money away? We're talking about generosity. When, when there's opportunities to give, is that a hard thing to do? Or is that something that you welcomely, uh, welcomely open the opportunity for? Is it hard or easy to give money away? Number five, are you in debt? Do we have more liabilities than 
assets. Number seven, two more. In the morning, are you more consumed with God or are you immediately thinking about stuff? When I wake up in the morning, is my first thought stuff? Is my first thought my job? Is my first thought my bank account? Or is my first priority spending time with God? And then number eight, are you more consumed with things than you are your daily walk with Jesus? Depending on how we answer some of these eight questions, and Nick, if you guys want to head up, we'll, we'll close out here. But as we sit and reflect on these eight questions, these things can be uh, a better litmus test than your tax bracket for whether or not we are truly surrendered to the heart of Jesus or whether we're allowing possessions and materialism to fog us. It is impossible to love something and to not sow into it. Pull up your bank account. <laughs> Look at it. Where am I spending most of my money? Is it on me, 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 me? Or is there evidence of us pouring in and sowing into eternal things? Again, guys, like we're going to, to, to spend things on it. We're going to go in and pay for things that uh, are enjoyable. And that's not bad. There's not nothing wrong with that. Right? But when we are so consumed with us, that we totally abandon generosity, that's when we've got to check if there's an issue. Jesus invites us into a life that is more, uh, with more satisfaction and joy and true life and the means of generosity than when we live apart from it. So don't rob God. Pray for ways to give and to bless, to watch the Lord bless you in return. Begin to pray, God, give me generous hands. Give me eyes to see ways that I can give. Rewire my heart even how to give. And I'll close with this. I heard it said a while ago that the posture we take in giving is the same posture we take in receiving. If we are closed-fisted to everything that we have, then we have no way to openly receive the things that God may give us in return. If we are constantly gripping and choking out the things that we have because we're afraid to let it go, then we are totally even missing out on the opportunity of God wanting to place something in your hands. Open-handed we give, open-handed we receive.